0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 87 and it's time to talk a bit about the terrifying power of sand poison and then a quick revisit to the frontier of 1821-22, which of course is almost exactly 200 years ago. As part of the picture of the past, at times when there's a bit of a lull in the action, so to speak, I'll concentrate on aspects of historical themes or interesting tidbits, and today we're looking into South Africa's first people, and specifically their deadly poison arrows. All the way through these episodes, you've heard about how the Amatosa, the Koi, and the Boers, and then the British, exploited or subjugated the sand, previously known as the Bushmen. We have enough DNA evidence to point to the fact that they were not only the first people of South Africa, but given their DNA diversity, they're the first people of planet Earth. But this didn't stop everyone from trying to kill them or co-opt them through the thousands of years that their lives have intersected with the lives of newer folks returning home, so to speak. The San were particularly terrifying because they could manufacture various types of poison for use with their arrows. Based on the results obtained from various artefacts spanning the historical late and middle Stone Age phases, particularly at sites along the Cape Coast, archaeologists believe poison bone arrowheads may have been in use in southern Africa through the last 72,000 years. The earliest oral history and written accounts also confirm the use of these weapons. We're going to focus on the sand of the Orange River, Kalahari and Namibia, and the hunting techniques vary. Usually arrows, but also spears and clubs or running down game animals and then dispatching them, something known as persistence hunting. In general, the colonists reported that the sand hunted small game with traps and snares, and then used poison arrows on large game like antelope, buffalo, cheetah, illant, elephant, gazelle, giraffe, impala, lion, puku, springbok, warthog, wildebeest, and zebra, and humans. The poison came from various sources, like beetles, grubs, and the part of a certain tree. The Carabidae Lebini, or ground beetle, for example, kills off host larvae and is a parasite and forms an excellent poison as it grows underground. It is unknown how the sand came to know that the labini is the grub of choice to crush and use as a poison that can kill a buffalo. The sand arrows are lightweight, constructed in three detachable sections, with little flight, which means hunters must creep up very close to their targets. But it all starts with the larva of the beetles, which would be pulped, then glued to the sinew around the haft of the arrow with plant gum. The arrowhead would be dried over hot coals, and although fresh poison is the most virulent, arrows could be regarded as active for three to six months. But here are the finer details of Sand Poison 101. The marula tree beetle, known as the Polyclida flexuosa, is known as an excellent source of this seriously dangerous poison. Other beetles include the nymph of the Damphidia negrunata. Between 8 to 12 grubs would be squashed together and mixed with saliva on a mortar, then smeared onto the binding behind the arrowhead. If hot coals weren't available, then these would just be air-dried. Settlers and amatosa shot with these arrows would usually die, because they didn't know what the antidote was. The trick would make a deep incision around the point of arrow entry and an attempt at draining the poison, but this made very little difference. It was basically a death sentence, and the only way to survive is to amputate the limb as quickly as possible. If you were shot in the abdomen or head, you'd be dead in a few hours. While the settlers and the amatkoza and koi koi initially had no idea what to do when shot with one of these little arrows, there are natural anti-venoms around. The liquid from the sans Ethiopica, otherwise known as pal's root or bowstring hemp, for example, but only if this is applied immediately. The larva poison can kill almost any game. Bows and arrows are very important in sand life. Even today, they're used in a ritual gift between husband and wife who can form marital hunting partnerships. Women can also own arrows and thus sometimes oversee meat distribution. The list of dangerous beetles is quite long, including the Chrysomilidae, another type of leaf beetle, the Galaricinae altacini or flea beetle, and then 17 species of the Damphidia. 16 species of the Polyclada, dozens of Carabidae or ground beetles in addition. The reality is so many of these bugs we observe hustling about our landscape have larvae that are truly horrifying, they are so potent. There are others known as shield bugs. These are associated with plants of various types, so the sand would be on the lookout as they roam the semi-desert areas of southern Africa, partly to use the tubers to eat and partly to dig below in order to discover more of their favourite poisoned larva. The digging is done by men and women. The soil and sand would be sifted by hand, and the one centimetre long oval-shaped cocoons would be collected in an ostrich eggshell. Back at the homestead, the tools would be arranged to manufacture the poison. They would use an old giraffe or kudu knuckle bone, stabilising this with the concave surface facing upwards. The cocoons would be placed nearby, usually on a piece of hide. A small fire is lit. The cocoons would be broken open and tapped. The single larva rolls out. Those that had pupa inside would be discarded. The larva was rolled between the fingers, loosening the inner tissues, taking care not to break the surface. This is dangerous work. The larva would be dropped into the giraffe knuckle and a stick used as a pestle, extracting the loose mixture onto the bone mortar. They would then use around 8 to 10 larvae, as I said, to create the perfect deadly soup. Then the bark of the Acacia mellifera, or blackhorn tree, would be chewed and the saliva produced is mixed with the lava tissue and the lymph remains. Oddly enough, the sand would also use wild asparagus and bark at times, and this is the material that would dry like glue holding the poison within. A bean of the Bobgunia madagascariensis plant, otherwise known as the snake bean, would also be mixed in with the lava to give it an additional poisonous kick at times. Then the paste would be applied to the dried sinew and fastened around the arrowhead to the wooden shaft with a twig, taking much care. The hunter would never touch the mixture with his or her hand at any point. The arrows would be propped up against a log or hung up to dry and finally stored in a quiver made of the bark of the root of an acacia tree. After all of this, the hunter would carefully clean their hands with loose dirt. To freshen up the poison before going into a hunt, the sand would often chew the bark of a devil's thorn, or the leaf of a wild asparagus plant, and spit on the sinew. The arrows are usually made of grass reeds for the shaft, some kind of bone, and then metal later for the arrowhead, sinew for the tying, and the resin of the acacia mellifera tree for glue. Some sand used beeswax as glue, and the bows are made from the branches from the small grivia flava, or velvet raisin bush. It's also been used to make baskets as the branches are very tough, while that fruit can be fermented to make quite an intoxicating drink. It's amazing what you can do in the felt with just a little knowledge and how dangerous are the chemicals that lurk within an innocent-looking little beetle and its larva. However, there were other poison manufacturing techniques if the beetle larva couldn't be found. The tubers of the plant called the bohemianum are dug out Cut to pieces and the inner plant tissue scraped into a container using animal bone. This would be boiled for hours until it forms a black coloured glue that would be applied to the arrow. Chemical studies revealed that poison is what's known as highly toxic peptide called toxalbumin. It only works when it enters the bloodstream and affects cell membrane permeability and your electrolyte balance. This causes tissue hypoxia and neurotoxicity and red blood cells die. The victim ends up urinating blood, then slowly becomes paralyzed, and finally you die of kidney failure. However, you can also die of heart failure if the arrow hits your chest, or a massive hemorrhage of the brain if it's in the neck and the head. Nasty stuff. Don't try making this at home. By the way, the use of beetles, plants, and animal toxins is global. Of course, there's the dart frog in Colombia, the tiger killed back snake in Japan, the poison rat in Somalia, Poison birds of New Guinea, water hemlock in North America, hemlock, of course, killed Socrates, the castor bean of Africa, rosary peas of Asia, Africa, Australia, and the Pacific, which is a bit like ricin, it's so deadly, the oleander of ancient Rome, and the raw tobacco plant, which will kill you if you eat it. Smoking it will, of course, kill you eventually as well. The list of dangerous plants, animals, and insects is almost endless, so we won't dwell any longer on the terrible toxins of terra firma. It's now time to move and refocus on what was going on across southern Africa and the world in 1821 as we step back to assess matters. In the east, of course, Shaka Zulu was starting to flex his imperial muscles, while in Cape Town, Lord Charles Somerset was back from his sabbatical and facing the ruin of most 1820 settlers. For the British, the land around the Amatolas was both beautiful and dangerous. It was an enticement and a menace. The Matrosa regarded the mountains as sacred, and the English settlers wanted to move on to that land. From these mountains, Ngweka's son Matroma was to sally forth, raiding their livestock. Gazing towards them from the heights above Grahamstown, they began gazing back lovingly regarding these lofty, misty, rolling hills as eminently desirable. By 1822, there was no longer any pretense that Ngweka could control frontier chiefs, even if he wanted to and these began to raid the farmers. A sense of community grew between the new English arrivals and the established Trekpurs. a sense of mutuality. When you have a sense of mutuality, you also have a sense of what is not mutual, or a sense of the other, and the amakosa became the other. They, of course, were experiencing the same sense of mutuality as they observed their land covered in the new settler farms. The other were no longer the early Trekboers who had followed the basic Koya-Amakosa rules of transhumans. These Trekboers and the settlers now seemed to merge into a group versus the Amakosa. And yet, it still wasn't that simple. Thomas Phillips, the rich landowner from Pembrokeshire in England, who'd managed to score some of the best land in Southern Africa, wanted action. He was connected among his correspondents with Sir John Owen, the Member of Parliament for Pembrokeshire, as well as the Countess of Mansfield. The raids across the frontier increased. The farmers and trek boers began to assemble commanders to scour for stolen cattle, and the settlers began to write long letters to their political friends back in England. Phillips recognised that matters had reached a turning point. He'd only heard about soldiers on one's property during the Civil War in England, and wrote now of watching these military riders unsaddle their horses and make a rest stop on the grass in front of his house near Grahamstown. For Britons to see soldiers in pursuit of their foe on their own land, he wrote, was a new thing. The settlers demanded action. Somerset was accused of ignoring their complaints while he kept most of the troops in the Cape, entirely for parade and performing in private theatricals, wrote Phillips. Phillips sent his letters further afield, now he began writing to editors of newspapers back in England, that published his complaints, and of course his friend the MP of Pembrokeshire was the most vocal local clarion there. But the newspapers were also obsessing about other matters at the end of 1821, which we must take a look at. Napoleon Bonaparte had just died of stomach cancer in exile on Santa Helena. Europe was increasingly unstable, as the agreements signed at the Congress of Vienna in 1815 were coming apart. The Serbs had just rebelled against the Ottomans, followed by the Greeks, who rose up against Ottoman rule in Macedonia, Crete, and Cyprus. The Turks weren't happy about that, so they hanged the patriarch of Constantinople, Gregorius V. The Greeks were even less happy about this, and then liberated the Peloponnesian Peninsula and massacred thousands of Muslims in the Turkish administrative city of Tripolitsa, which is a town in southern Greece. The happenings of Little Old Eastern Cape were not front and central to most British readers of news. Baltic German Fabian Gottlieb von Bellinghausen, who was actually a Russian naval officer, became the first to circumnavigate the Antarctic, and the papers were amazed. Almost as amazing was the story that James Boyd had just patented the rubber fire hose, gasps as water flowed through a bendy pipe. Who knew? Headlines were emblazoned with interesting tales of multinational importance. For example... The United States had just bought Florida from Spain for $5 million in 1821. Venezuela, Peru, and Mexico declared independence from Spain in the same year, and the first freed black American slaves had headed to Liberia in West Africa, where they resettled, also 1821. Early 1822 was also a very busy period in world history. Michael Faraday had just discovered how electricity can be used to power electric motors, and a man from the Austrian capital Vienna had invented the accordion, which would be one of the more loved musical instruments of the Treckboers in the coming years and would become the instrument of choice amongst the Koi Koi wagon drivers through the Boer War. The accordion remains a staple of southern African rural sockey and Stafaram line dancing to this day. While all of this was emerging locally and internationally, Lord Charles Somerset finally decided that he should get cracking on the eastern Cape frontier. A new fort was hastily erected on the banks of the Cut River, higher up the hills and an entrance to the valleyed areas where Marcoma was raiding. This new settlement was called Fort Beaufort, named after the House of Beaufort, but the Amatosa were still determined to walk overland to the clay pits and continued passing through the settler farms. The British authorities began to impose a limit on when they could access their clay, allowing the bartering for this valuable resource only during times of full moon, once a month, in other words. This failed to stop cattle theft, and so the British thought it best to ban the clay trade altogether. In early 1822, British troops opened fire on a group of Amakosa men digging the clay, and the response was immediate. Four settlers were attacked and killed around the farms in the clay pits area, and those killed included two more English herd boys. You know by now that the English settlers did most of their own farm labour, unlike the Trikpoos who deployed Koi Koi and slaves. This meant the young English boys were an easy target for the Amakosa raiders. By the end of 1822, the third harvest had failed, and the settlers were on their last legs. Many abandoned their land. But they weren't alone at that point. The Trepoos were also moving away from their more distant farms, fearful that the Amakosa raiders would kill them too. Phillips wrote that total ruin stares us in the face, and he began investigating moving his family to Van Diemen's Land, i.e., Australia or South America. It has become pretty evident to us all that this is a country in which it would be the height of imprudence to make any permanent improvement," wrote the rich landowner. For after all we do, during a period of lulling serenity, an invasion takes place of these restless savages who creep from bush to bush. As with other farmers of the time, Philip still could not see why this was happening, or refused to see the reason. The land itself was the problem. He had set up his 1,000-acre farm on someone else's property, but the British had kept this important piece of information away from these new landowners. By now they had become aware, but of course it was too late. And many had been imprudent enough to have made a permanent improvement on these lands. They had spent their limited capital on soil that now wouldn't produce and was becoming more deadly. Phillips looked out at his corn infested with locusts and caterpillars. His fruit trees were not bearing. His potatoes were not growing. The settlers wanted to vent about this, but Lord Charles Somerset had banned public gatherings, and he'd also had the printing press they had arrived with confiscated. Like his descendants later, he somehow thought that banning public gatherings and printed material was going to miraculously make the problems go away. They don't. Somerset had not bothered to meet any of the settlers yet, despite this being year two of them being on their farms. Lord Charles sat down at this point and wrote a letter to the colonial secretary, Earl Bathurst, who ran the colonies and said... I can best describe the characteristics and disposition of the major part of the settlers by attaching to them the familiar appellation of radical. Their chief object is to oppose and render odious all authority, to magnify the difficulties, and to promote and sow the seeds of discontent wherever their baneful influence can extend. Lord Bathurst, however, was more interested in Australia, Van Diemen's Land. In 1817, he had dispatched a commission of inquiry to Australia to investigate the colony's use of transportation and treatment of convicts. And when the report came back, they recommended even more criminals be sent down under. Somerset was told by Bathurst to grant permission for public meetings to take place in Grahamstown, back in South Africa, and they went ahead. In England, another bewigged group of VIPs had caucused and who, at this moment, had a direct bearing on matters in Southern Africa. These were the peripatetic MPs in the British House of Commons, led by Henry Brougham, who had read the angry accounts in the press of the plight of the British settlers in South Africa and used the Commons to pummel Lord Charles Somerset. After what was called a hectic spectacle, the British government had appointed a commission of inquiry to be sent to the Cape with instructions to look deeply into the state of the civil government, the judicial structure, General conditions, and more importantly for everyone, the situation regarding the Khoikhoi and the slave populations. This all happened on July 25th, 1822, and was supplemented by a note by abolitionist William Wilberforce, who added that the motion, Recommend the state of the Hottentots to His Majesty's benevolent care, a race of men long misrepresented and vilified. This commission would lead inadvertently to war, and would be further motivation for many frontier Boers to decide to head off on something called the Great Trek. We were heading into explosive times. The period between 1820 and 1830 produced ructions, the likes of which had not yet been seen across the subcontinent. The decade of drought and the increased effect of the expanding colony, along with the sudden surge in Amazulu power, was going to lead to a movement of the people, to misquote Bob Marley. The oral history of this time is profound, so too the written, as you're going to hear Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there at deslatham. Until next, goodbye.